Fun Belt Podcast. Fun Belt Podcast. Fun Belt Podcast. Fun Belt Podcast. It's just a, a great conference that is at a, at a point right now where they're, I think, clearly the best group of five conference in the country. The state of fun, Sun Belt football is the strongest in our history. Uh, and we've got to continue to showcase uh, what our league is about. We're back for another episode. This week is so huge. We had to have two people. It's the state of Texas, Texas State. The Bobcats are the topic of the night. Apparently, our new song, Jeremy, uh, it, 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 it killed Ben. He, he's not with us tonight. And uh, RIP, Ben, we, uh, we miss you. We'll pour we one out miss- for you, but not on the hardwood floors. I'm sorry. My wife said I couldn't do it. So uh, joining me as always, though, Jeremy Harper with HowRazor.com. Got you. And then, of course, from Texas State, Brant Freeman, the extraordinaire of the Bobcats, covering them for the ESPN Plus uh, platform. Welcome in, Brent. Dusty, Jeremy, looking forward to this, guys. You might not be looking forward after the end of this. You might be, you might, you might be like, oh, no, my reputation, it's in tatters. Oh, not sure it could be any worse than it is now. <laughs> On that note, we talk about reputations. Man, I tell you, Texas State, they were huge this past offseason. Got a new athletic director that really is going to boost that reputation. A guy that seems like he is uh, he is a Bobcat through and through. Mm-hmm. So tell us what uh, the Don, I like, I like saying that, the Don, what the Don brings to San Marcos. What's funny is that one of the first reactions we get when people hear the name Don Coriel um, I don't know how much we're all dating ourselves here, is people think of the old San Diego Chargers quarterback, uh, Eric Coriel, um, who, by the way, passed. I think he passed away uh, 10, 15 years ago. Um, not the same guy, obviously. Uh, you look at you know Texas State and kind of their journey to the Sun Belt. Um, and, you know, the previous athletic director, uh, Larry Tice, he took over the job in 04, and there was almost instant success with the football program. Um, they won a conference championship at the FCS level and made a run to the uh, FCS national semifinals in 2005, won another championship in 08 and made the postseason then. Um, and then it wasn't long after that that the move up happened. They announced their intentions to move up to FBS football in 2011 and did so in 2012. Um, all of the facilities have under have seen or have undergone some massive improvements. The football stadium, uh, certainly uh, baseball, softball, basketball recently had a $60 million renovation to its arena. Um, and I think that that's Larry Tice's legacy, you know, uh, was all the facility upgrades, uh, having been the AD during uh, the important times of transition. Um, but, you know, it's nice to kind of get a fresh start a little bit, you know, and, and Don Coriel. Um, has been with the department, you know, during all those milestones. He's been there since 2004 himself when Larry took over the AD position. Um, and he's built some great relationships with uh, student athletes. Um, as he runs the T Association, is kind of the, the Hall of Fame in Texas State. So he's been in touch with a lot of former student athletes and current as well as he oversees a number of sports. Um, he has great relationships with the donors. He's a very personable guy. 
Larry was kind of introverted at times um, to a fault where Don is kind of the opposite of that. You know, he's he likes to be out in, in the public and, and talking to donors. And and um, so I think uh, a lot of good things could happen with Don Coriel now the head of the department. And a lot of good things have happened beyond facilities and, and uh, you know, eventually moving to the Sunbelt. There's been a lot of there's been a lot of success within the Sunbelt for all the athletic programs um, at Texas State. Just about everybody has either been in contention for or has won a championship since the move up to the conference in 2013, except football. <laughs> well, um, Brent, that's what I was going to I was going to lead in with because yeah. I well, not necessarily because of football, mm-hmm. but we, we when the Sunbelt brought in Texas State, I think there was this, this idea that, oh, man. We're bringing in a, a, a program that's going to have all this sort of Texas juice to it. That's going to mm-hmm. be, it's going to have a lot of power. And the first year, a couple of years, Texas State and football did have some good, good, good years. Mm-hmm. And then ended up in the Sunbelt basement. And we kind of forgot that Texas State is a good basketball program, mm-hmm. is a great volleyball program, mm-hmm. uh, can do things in track, can do things in other sports that aren't necessarily football. And now with sports, but you're right. He seems like a guy everybody likes. He seems like one of these young, energetic coaches with a, 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 a sort of offensive game plan that can get things going. Is this the year that Texas State finally makes that step in football again? So, as you said, Jeremy, uh, you know, the first couple of years, it felt like Texas State very much belonged. You know, they, they won six games year one. Um, they won seven games in year two. And that 2014 year, they really felt as if um, they were robbed of, of, an, of an opportunity to go to a bowl. As we all know, at the time, the Sunbelt didn't have many bowl tie-ins. I think it was only three at the time. Um, and I think Ark State, Louisiana, and South Alabama went that year, and Texas State was left out. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, the program just hasn't been the same since then. You know, those first two years – happened with Dennis Franchione as the head coach. And again, they, they made a lot of headway, had a lot of talented players, a couple that went on to play in the NFL. But the bottom fell out the following year, in 2015, and a change was made with Everett Withers. And um, he tried to kind of, you know, uh, start from scratch, you know, uh, excused a lot of players from the team, brought in all of his own coaches, um, had a different recruiting philosophy than Fran did. Fran tend to kind of go 50-50, high school recruits, JUCO route. Withers wanted to go almost exclusively with the high schools, um, which meant a lot of young teams that he fielded. And uh, they just never quite had the influx of talent that they needed to compete in the Sun Belt. You know, they, they won two games, uh, three games, and two games for Withers, you know, when Coach Babadol was brought in. I seem to recall a Withers team that seemed to be nothing but freshmen. Yeah, <laughs> like almost exclusively comprised of freshmen, and we're right. all waiting for those guys to become seniors. Like, oh my God, this is going to be that. That will be the year when they really steamroll everybody. Mm-hmm. But Withers yeah. just seemed like a guy who just didn't get along in San Marcos. Like the, he, he he ruffled too many feathers. Uh, he didn't seem to be that sort of energizer that 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 brought the the boosters together. Would you agree with that, or would you just say that it was just, was it something else? Yeah, it, it kind of felt like, you know, um, Everett Withers wanted everything to be done, you know, but, but leave me alone kind of deal. Um, like, we're, we're going to get this done within our bubble, you know, with or without you kind of thing. 
Um, but if you look at the successful programs in the conference, you see a, a lot of great community support. You see um, the word that Spavro likes to use is galvanized. And you see like a lot of the football programs with their universities, with the student bodies, with former uh, student athletes, the alumni, you know, uh, they, they galvanize with one another, you know, and uh, create a great environment, create, there's a great following and everybody kind of, you know, moves in the same direction, they get it done together. And, you know, Withers had more of a kind of a closed off approach. And, um, you know, if you, if you win and you're doing that, people will ignore it. But if you lose, that gets exacerbated. Well, to me, to, it, it, this is, seems to me like a, a, a trap that Sunbelt teams used to get into a lot mm -hmm. and that they would, they would hire an FCS coach. I know South Alabama has done that. I know Alabama has done that a couple of times. Sometimes there's success, sometimes there isn't. Mm -hmm. But you get a coach like Withers who's kind of used to being able to fly under the radar, do the program his own way and not have to deal with a rabbit fan base, not have mm -hmm. to deal with aggressive boosters, not have to deal with a community that's 100% vested into the, into the system. It seems like Spavadol, who, who has come from a bigger background, really understands this and says, we've got to get everybody involved. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's serving him well. Now, you know, going into year three with Coach Withers, I think there was the sentiment that like, hey, you know, after five wins the first two years, it's time to win now. If they're going to, if they're going to turn on the program, year three is it. Um, and I think there's some of that with Spavadol going into this year, but maybe not quite to the, to the degree that, uh, that it was with Withers going into his third season. And I think a lot of that has to do to the fact that, you know, Spavadol has been far more engaging, you know, with, um, you know, with alumni and current, the current student body and former football players. Um, there's been a bigger outreach by him. Um, and so I think as a result, there's a little bit more faith in what he can do and maybe buys him a little bit more time. That said, though, it's been uh, seven years yeah. since this program last had a winning record. People are are tired. He's Favidal included, who said it himself. They're tired of being close. You know, um, you look back at the results last year, and there were three games they easily could have won but didn't. You know, the, the UTSA game, Boston College, and Georgia Southern, games they, they could have won but didn't. Why um, didn't you win that Boston College game? Oh, my God. I know. Um, <laughs> up 21-7 in the third quarter. You know, couldn't hold on. There was a questionable pass interference call against them in the fourth. And, you know, and, and, and uh, just the game just got away from them. You know, and that's been one of the issues with this team is that um, they can't seem to finish. Um, and when you can't finish, you don't win. And so, you know, uh, so Coach Withers in, in the offseason – as I'm sure you guys were wanting to talk about, um, brought in a bunch of ready-made players. Uh, the recruiting class was almost exclusively made up of transfers. Um, and there's a couple of reasons behind that. You know, one, I think that, that yes, you know, that there, there's some, some pressure to win now, where if you bring in a bunch of high school kids, they have, at this level, um, you don't get in heavily impactful freshmen. It's very rare. You know, out of Alabama, at an LSU, um, at a USC, at a Texas, you might get an impactful freshman. But the Sun Belt, it usually takes these, these student athletes a year or two before they're ready to make a huge impact. And um, Spavadol said it during the first press conference following the opening um, fall camp practice, 
had they gone the traditional route of going, you know, all high school, 90% of the roster would have been freshman to sophomore. And when you look at the landscape of the Sun Belt and all these experienced teams like Louisiana and Coastal Carolina, you know, the headliners, um, it's going to be tough, you know, for freshmen and sophomores to contend with that. Um, and so a lot of that, I think, factored into the approach Spavadol had with this recruiting this past offseason. You do have some good players coming back, though. Uh, two great quarterbacks. What is really the difference that they can have to really stand out? Because it seems like Tyler Vitt, finally a senior. You talk about these guys that have been around for a day and then some. Uh, finally a senior, 60% completion last year. So you know he knows what he's doing. The offense is, is right for him. But then you had Brady McBride that kind of came in to the quarterback. Is that really a starter controversy or is that just a good quarterback battle that they're having in camp? Yeah, one name you didn't mention was one of the newcomers and Ty Evans. Um, a highly regarded quarterback who's from Colorado, had transferred in from NC State. When he was in high school, he had offers from Michigan and Alabama and South Carolina. Um and uh, so now he's here at Texas State, so he'll push for the starting job as well. Um, you know, Vitt has been in the program since 2017. McBride, this will be his third year. He's the guy who seems like he's been there since, like, the 80s. Yeah, I know. I know. Uh, you know McBride uh, transferred in from Memphis a couple of years ago. This will be his third year in, in the program. They've both gotten plenty of experience. You know, Vitt has more starts than McBride does, simply because he's been in the program longer. Um, both did some good things last year. Both also had some pretty bad moments. You know, McBride lost his job after um, a poor performance against Louisiana Halloween. Vitt takes over, does okay, um, gets hurt in the Georgia Southern game. McBride takes over, and then he ends the year in a tear. Um, his last three games of the year, headlined by his performance against Arkansas State, really – sorry about that, Jeremy – made people uh, – <laughs> you know, led them to believe that McBride was the uh, unquestioned starter going into this season. But, you know, Vitt uh, certainly can push him, as can Ty Evans. This is the deepest that the quarterback position has been, maybe since Texas State has been in the Sun Belt. So it sounds to me that what you're implying is that Texas State, which I always thought of as a defensive football team, especially mm-hmm. I'm thinking back in the in the, uh, the early days of, of its membership in the Sun Belt, it always seemed that bruising defense. Yeah. And you had to get by that defense if you wanted to beat Texas State. Now it sounds to me like you're saying Texas State with these quarterbacks, these mature quarterbacks could become a big offensive threat too. I think that was the expectation when Spavadol came in. Yeah. You, you look at the Withers era and – they actually have some pretty good defensive teams. Um, in fact, the final game he coached, um, they went to Troy, held, held a good Trojans team. I think it was the final year that Neil Brown was the head coach. A good Troy team without a touchdown. Troy yeah. kicked four field goals in that game and won. Texas State's offense can only muster up seven points that day, and coach and Everwood has never coached a game again. So one of the drawbacks with his teams was they just couldn't score. So when they were looking for a new coach, they were looking for somebody with youth to, to inject some energy into the program and looking for an offensively minded coach. And Jake Spavadol had previously been the offensive coordinator of West Virginia. Uh, he also been at Texas A&M. He'd been at Houston. He had been at Cal with some really good offenses, with good quarterbacks. Um, 
And guys that didn't really translate all the well to the NFL, but collegially really good. And Johnny Menzel, Davis Webb, Geno Smith, um, you know, guy, guy, Will Greer, guys like that. And, um, and so that air raid style of offense is what people expected. He didn't quite have the personnel to do that his first year. And a year ago, was last year was such a strange year with COVID. Uh, and, and that couple with injuries still couldn't quite feel the depth he wanted this year, especially the depth of quarterback, great playmakers, the receiver, running back and, and tight end. They feel like their identity could very well be a high octane, you know, 35, 40 point a game offense this year. And, and yeah, you know, kind of bucks that identity that they've had for so long being a defensive team. This year's team, I think, will be identified by its offense. So you said that, uh, or we've talked about the quarterbacks. We know that, that that's going to be an interesting race coming down to the first week of the season. Who else should Tibbs and I be looking for from Texas State? Who else is going to be the guys that, that dominate on the field that we need to stop? Well, I think the receiver position is as good as it's ever been. You know, there was a very exciting guy a year ago, Jeremiah Haydell, um, who uh, was one of the better kick returners in the conference. He's now gone with the L.A. Rams. But, uh, but Marcel Barbie was actually their leading receiver a year ago in terms of catches and yards and touchdowns. I think he finished tied for seventh nationally in touchdown catches and uh, had 10 of them, which was the most for Texas State since they joined the ranks of the FBS. Um, so he, alongside David Banks and uh, Rontavius Graves, a transfer into the program um, from, uh, uh, I think, Wake Forest, uh, or no, North Carolina. Um, they can be really good. Um, so I, I think, you know, Barbie specifically can be amongst the, the great receivers in the, in the Sun Belt we're going to see this year. And running back, they don't have a bell cow. They have a good three-headed attack, but they don't have a guy who's going to carry 20, 25 times a game. But the stable they have between Brock Sturgis, Jamil Jeter, and Calvin Hill is very, very good. Defense always wins championships. So last year, Bobcats defense, one of the worst in the league, giving up 55 total touchdowns in kind of their abbreviated season there, second worst rushing defense, giving up over 200 yards. Mm -hmm. But this year, they pulled Jordan Mitchell away from Georgia Southern. How big of an impact do you see him being – so, you know, first off, you know, Mitchell will be joining a defensive line that is, is kind of deep right now. And one of the biggest issues they've had has been their front seven. It has been getting, has been stopping the run and has been getting pressure on opposing quarterbacks. They only had 12 sacks a year ago. In fact, you know, you look, at, look back at the last six seasons and they haven't won more than three games in any of them. The biggest reason why is the trenches. Offensive line, defensive line, the inability to establish the run and protect the quarterback and the inability to stop the run and get after opposing quarterbacks is why they've been, why they've struggled so much. In fact, over the past five years, no team in the country has fewer sacks than Texas State's defense. So they had to revamp the defensive line. So you know, they bring in you know, Mitchell from Georgia Southern. Uh, they have, uh, uh, they brought in another transfer um, on the defensive line uh, from Texas Tech, name is escaping me right now. Um, Savion Patton, who was a one of the better D linemen, didn't play all of last year because of a um, uh, a lower back injury. He's healthy, ready to go. 
They have a preseason second team, all-conference defensive lineman, Nico Esador. They feel good about that position. Um, I don't – you know, linebackers a big question mark for me. Um, not a ton was addressed there in the offseason. They did bring in a Kansas State transfer to Marquise Hayes, although he never played for K-State, and he's young. He's only a freshman. Um, but in the, in the back end, the secondary might be the best unit that, uh, on the defense. Um, and so uh, there was a big need for improvement there, and, and they're much deeper they're bigger and they're far more athletic than they have been in a while. One of the biggest complaints Fab has had is that their guys don't look like the other guys, meaning that like when they take the field, line up and look at an Arkansas State or look at a ULM. He actually used a ULM as a great example from his first season in 2019. They just look so much bigger than Texas State's guys. Um, and so they made a, uh, you know, when they brought in all these transfers, they wanted to get guys who had the look to them. So it looks like that you're rebuilding the defense, you're rebuilding the offense. Now is the time it's going to come all together. Your first game is against Baylor, a big Texas versus Texas matchup that everybody in the Sun Belt, I'm going to admit it, I'm stoked for this game. Everybody's talking about Louisiana versus Texas. Texas State and Baylor to me is just as big. Baylor hit with some infraction or hit with some uh, with some uh, penalties. On the wrist. Slaps yeah. on the wrist. Yeah, and should be much bigger. But we can talk about that later. We're not going to talk about Baylor. We're going to talk about Texas State. But that being said, you're playing Baylor. Baylor's already been hit with that blow with uh, Texas and Oklahoma leaving the Big 12. They've got the sanctions. So that, that ugliness that happened in 2016 is coming back again. So you're getting them at an emotional time. Can Texas State make a big statement this year and beat Baylor? This would be the time to do it. You know, uh, striking while the iron is hot kind of deal. Um, you know, there's a lot of intriguing storylines going into this game. You know, certainly with Baylor's future being one of them. You know, is there going to be a Big 12? If there is, what would it look like? You know, uh, what would the impact of Texas and Oklahoma leaving uh, be a, on them specifically. Um, you mentioned the, the the sanctions being handed down by the NCAA. You have Dave Aranda in his second year as head coach who took over from Matt Rule, who, you know, t- he was the one tasked with kind of cleaning up the mess left behind by our Bryles and did a great job. Won one game his first year, then went seven in the year two, 11 in the year three, and then he goes to the Carolina Panthers. Um, so there's a, a decent bar to be met there for Aranda. Um, offensively, they were a mess a year ago. Uh, fifth worst rushing offense in the country last year. Um, they brought in a new offensive coordinator. They brought in a number of transfers on the offensive line, a new O-line coach, and their quarterback, Charlie Brewer, left for Utah. So whoever starts, likely Gary Bohannon in the opener, will be his first career start. So you have all this, all this stuff happening around Baylor's program. You have all this newness with the offense. Um, You you don't want to give them a chance to figure things out and gel. So getting them week one is the opportune time to do it. Now, defensively, Baylor is very good. So while Texas State has a chance to be very good offensively, can they expect to score 40-plus on Baylor? I don't know about that. But this is a huge opportunity for Texas State. Only the second time ever a Power 5 team will have played in St. Marcus the first time it's happened in nine years for them. And look, they have a chance to do something to, to keep the trend going for the Sun Belt. 
Because Man. last year, the conference owned the Big 12. We own, we're the daddy of the Big 12. Right. A-State goes to Manhattan, beats K-State. Louisiana beats Iowa State, you know, and Coastal Carolina, you know, thrashes Kansas. So, um, you know, this is a chance to keep that trend going. And this, if, if Texas State can pull it off, what a way to start the year for them and one in which they're trying to exceed expectations. It looks like the Bobcat season, though, is really kind of divided straight down the middle where you have all of your non-conference games there before bye week and then a brutal Sunbelt Conference run, beginning with South Alabama that I really think is, is probably one of the sleeper teams in the conference. Troy, I, I think, has a one more down year before they're kind of back to that normal Troy year. And then Georgia State, who if Ben was here, he would, you know, be telling you how great they are and how – they will be hosting the Sunbelt Conference Championship this year in their brand-new stadium. What are your thoughts on that on that schedule and any games that you see that are maybe a little bit uh, higher priority that you've got to win this one uh, compared to others? You know, what's funny is that um, the two of the road games they have are in Lafayette and in Conway, the two best teams in the conference going into this 2021 year. Um and I'm kind of glad they're on the road and not at home because, because to me, that would make you want, if you can win five, four to five or all six of your home games, you're, you're in a great position for a bowl. Getting those teams at home hurts your chances of doing that. Um, so I, I like that those games on the road, albeit they're going to be extremely difficult to win. Um, now, in terms of, the, of, you know, I go through the schedule. The one team they avoid is Appalachia State. Not a bad team to miss in your schedule, certainly. Um, but the first two conference games, as you said, South Alabama and Troy. Um, and then they go to Georgia State and Louisiana. And they come home for ULM and Georgia Southern, finish with Coastal Arkansas State. Kind of funny how it goes 2-2-2-2, two, 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 and two. home road, home road for them. Um, I really think those first two games, Dusty, are going to be very telling for them. Um, they're both at home. You know, Troy isn't what they have been, but how long is that going to last, as you said? And South Alabama is a very intriguing team this year with Kane Womack, you know, getting ready for his first season, great young coach, and, you know, inherits a, a program that hasn't had a lot of success. How quick will their turnaround be? Um, and they've got some really good weapons offensively too. And you see, those two games are so important because the next two are at Georgia State, which has a chance to be very good this year, and Louisiana, which is the class of the West Division. So, those two games are the most important for them on their entire schedule. A split is paramount. Going 0-2 is going to kill their season. 2-0 makes their year very interesting moving forward. So as we look through the schedule, what are the teams outside of Texas State that you're really looking forward to seeing this year, whether it be in person or even uh, you know, through the ESPN agreement there? Georgia State, I think, is very intriguing because you look at the East and App State has, has run it for so long. Coastal explodes onto the scene last year. Can anybody push them in the East? Georgia State might be that team. You don't sleep on Georgia Southern either. Um, but you look at the West. It is so intriguing outside of Louisiana with three first-year coaches. You know, it could be anybody. It really, it really could. You know, who, who's going to push for second? Who could, or maybe could somebody actually push the Cajuns, you know, for the division crown there? And if, if, and if there is that team, which one is it going to be? Is it going to, going to be Texas State catching people by surprise, or will it be one of these first-year coaches? 
I find Arkansas State extremely intriguing. You know, they're coming off a, a down year, certainly by their standards, you know, and um, but Blake Anderson did so many great things there. It's kind of strange to see somebody else on the sidelines now. Um, but, uh, you know, Butch Jones, I think, could, could be a really great fit there. Kane Womack certainly is intriguing to South Alabama. And, you know, and, and Coach Bowden at ULM, you hope that everything is okay with him personally. Obviously, tragic losing his dad, you know, just a few days ago. Um, he's got Rich Rod now as his offensive coordinator, you know. So, um, gosh, if I had to pinpoint one team that I'm, I'm looking forward to watching the most, I think I'd say Arkansas State right now. I'm really curious what Jones is going to do there in year one. And uh, I'm not just saying that because Jeremy's here. <laughs> well, I'm curious too. <laughs> so I, I, I'm just maybe even more curious than you are about what, what's going to happen. I, at I hope so, Jeremy. <laughs> in fact, uh, what I always find, I won't say it's amusing. I, I find it intriguing that Texas State always seems to be the final, the finale of the year for Arkansas State. It's it, and it, there seems to be a, a little bit of room here to make Texas State and Arkansas State some kind of bitter rivalry. Right. And that hasn't happened yet. And I've tried to, to stoke the flames a little bit on Twitter, you know, like, oh, you know, everybody and San Marcos, they're just idiots. You know, I'll try to try to get things going. And they'll just like, ah, you, you're just so funny. So I don't know what to do to make Texas State Arkansas State, the two bitter rivals. Is there anything that we can do to make that happen? Because it needs to happen. Yeah, I, I would love to see it happen, Jeremy. I mean, I'm, those two teams are on an island in the Sun Belt. They're the only That's ones without a geographical partner for football. Um, so, you know, I think that that in and of itself kind of lends to the chance of a rivalry building because Justin will tell you, ULM and the Cajuns don't like each other, right? The Alabama's battle for the belt. The Georgia's really don't like each other. Um, really? I don't think there was much to the Carolinas until now. I think with Coastal, you yeah. know, what they did last year, App State now feels threatened by them, which maybe they didn't before. Um, and so, you know, so there's that chance for these two to develop something. And as you said, Jeremy, it seems like they always play either the last or maybe second to last game of the year. They, they had one of the, the games of the year in the Sun Belt last year, you know, a shootout 47-45 that Texas State wound up winning. Yeah, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't I didn't really consider it that big of a game. I think that, but I so I think in a way the Sun Belt has tried to manufacture that rivalry with the way they've scheduled the, the two against each other, but it really hasn't come to pass simply because it's been kind of one-sided for the most part. Texas State yeah, is I mean, Texas State needs to start like uh having a lot of big football success. But like right. I said, they already have great success in volleyball and basketball and these other mm -hmm. places. Football is going to come around. So I feel like that rivalry is eventually going to show up. But I want to talk a little bit about mm -hmm. potential for another rivalry. Okay. A little unorthodox rivalry. And it's sort of a water channel rivalry between San Marcos and its beautiful river that runs through it and the sort of murky, gross creek at Georgia Southern that seems to get all the attention. Now tell me that that doesn't make you angry. Like, look, we've got this crystal clear river. This should be on the news, not this murky, muddy depths in, 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 a, in a Statesboro. I need you to be angry about this, Brant. Be angry with me. 
doing ESPN Plus stuff, I have to be diplomatic. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, you're right. I, I hear a lot, you know, about Eagle Creek and uh, you know, and, and the history behind it. I'll tip my cap to Georgia Southern. It's a school that is so rich in tradition between, you know, the, the, the school buses, right, you know, in Eagle Creek and that option offense for all these years and, and um, you know, stuff like that. You know, it, it's a passionate fan base, and, and I get it. One of the problems is we don't play them enough. Um, Georgia Southern will make its first Saturday visit to San Marcos this season since 2014. So, and Texas State hasn't gone there enough. I think since the two schools have been in the conference together, they've played three times, maybe four. They haven't played each other enough. And what's funny is that there's a chance for those two schools to really build something there because there was a historic game in 2005 when they were both in the F- 1AA, then, then it was known. First round of the FCS playoffs, Georgia Southern was up 35-16 in the third quarter. And they had been an established national powerhouse at that point. Texas State was a 1AA playoff newcomer. The Bobcats stormed back and won that game 50-35 to and nearly went all the way to the national championship that year. Well, for Georgia Southern, the the loss was so stunning. They fired their head coach, Mike Seawalk, brought in a a first-year guy the following year, and he takes away the option, takes away the school buses. You know, um, he did everything but, you know, do something bad to Eagle, to Eagle Creek. Um, and uh, they, they ran him out of town. They ran him out of town. And so um, that, that one year, I think, helped propel Texas State eventually to the FBS and really made Georgia Southern rethink, you know, its coaching moves moving forward. And so you're right, man. Let's, let's have this battle in the water, you know, between the Eagles and Bobcats. So with all this talk of, of, of having a rival, it all starts out in the parking lot, maybe even after the game in the parking lot, with the tailgates. My trip to San Marcos, while it's a beautiful campus, everything's great there, where are the people that tailgate? It, it, it is a last-minute show up to the game. There's no smoke filling the air. You can't find a rib anywhere. What is up with that? It's, it's frustrating, Dusty, because, yeah, the food here is so good, right? Texas, South Texas is known for so much, you know, barbecue and, uh, and, and, and Mexican food and, you know, great burgers down here. Um, you know, I, it's, a, it's a chicken and egg kind of deal with this program where you talk to the fan base, what's going to bring you to the stadium? They'll say, you know, winning. And the football team will tell you, well, it'll be easier to win our home games if you're there you know, and pack it out. Um, so somebody's got to blink first in that regard. Um, it, it's actually, it actually has been an issue in years past where the students, specifically the fraternities, will come out and tailgate. Now there's two tailgating, uh, there, there seems to be two tailgating areas, one for the alumni on the west side, one for the students on the east. And the east side shows up in far greater numbers, but the problem is they don't actually go into the stadium. They'll tailgate, they'll have fun out there, and then when game gets ready to kick off, they're in the cars and they leave. That is a universal problem with college sports, is that the, yeah. getting the student section to get off their drunk butts and come into the stadium and root for their team. Yeah, that seems to be a universal problem. Talking about conference realignment, 
that's something that Texas State had to kind of go through. And and do you think that that might have kind of added to where they are now? As if you look at the surface of their record, when they were a part of that whack that really just imploded overnight, and then at the time maybe kind of felt like they had to fall back to the Sun Belt instead of leaping forward to where they thought they were going to be. You know, I, I remember that when the uh, when the WAC collapsed, you know, fans were looking more at Conference USA because uh, there are Texas teams in there, specifically football teams. Rice, UTSA was making a move there. Uh, UTEP was already in. North Texas was making a move from the Sun Belt to Conference USA. Um, and a lot of fans looked at the lack of football teams in Texas in the Sun Belt and the conference's reputation at the time wasn't what it is now. Um, and so, you know, I think many felt as if at the time they settled, but now you fast forward and you can see just what a great group of five conference it really is. Um, you know, you got two teams that are ranked in the top 25 going into this year. You know, um, I mentioned the record against the Big 12, you know, last year, 3-0. And I feel like there's been at least one win over Power 5 in each of the past six years, something like that. Um, you know, the, the performance in bowl games, all the bowl tie-ins now that weren't there when Texas State joined back in 2013. So at the time, I don't know how excited people were for it. But, you know, looking at it now, um, I think that the fans are far more – Content's not the right word. I think they're happy to be where they're at. What will happen with the next line of realignment? I don't know. I don't. Will the dominoes stop at the Power Five level if they make this Power Four or whatever these super conferences and it doesn't have a trickle down effect? Um, I don't know. Um, but uh, I think that that fans are far more happy with the conference than they were eight years ago now. I think we're all happier with the conference than we were eight years ago. And you're right. CUSA eight years ago was like, oh, man, these guys are running laps around us. We're picking up some FBS programs to try to keep up. They can never uh, have the the same sort of cachet as some of these other programs like Western Kentucky or Northern Texas or Middle Tennessee, all these teams that the Sun Belt ended up losing. But we actually recruited a lot better. Yeah. And it worked out really well. Credit Carl Benson if you must, uh, but uh, it, it worked out pretty good for us. Now Sunbelt is in that position of strength. We had Chris uh, Vanini on last night, and he laid it out. He was like, there's really no reason for the CUSA and for the Sunbelt to merge because what's in it for the Sunbelt? The Sunbelt yeah, has the contracts. The Sunbelt has the wins. CUSA doesn't have that. So you're right. Texas State did a good job. Coming into the Sun Belt, congratulations, well done. Maybe we can credit Texas State for pushing Benson to the Sun Belt to get us in this position. Can we do that? Sure, why not? (laughs) (laughs) All right, I will draft the legislation. We'll go ahead and stamp it and seal it, and we'll send it to Carl Benson to sign. That sounds like the, the thing to do here. Brant, thank you for joining us. We always end our show with uh, plugs, promos, and parting shots. Uh, what are you plugging? What kind of promo you got or uh, what's your, your parting shot? Sure. Well, um, you know, my, my Twitter handle is easy to find, at Brant underscore Freeman. Um, uh, of course, you know, I do the ESPN Plus telecasts. Um, 
a lot of those were picked up by national television last year because uh, of the lack of games available to the linear networks. Um, we didn't get to do as many. Um, as of right now, we have all six. So uh, Arkansas State, they don't come to San Marcos, but ULM does. So when your fans are complaining about the commentators, this is the guy. Um, <laughs> yes. Right. No, but um, but guys, uh, you know, this has been fun. Um, you know, uh, I follow a lot of Sunbelt accounts. I know that, you know, uh, Jeremy, I now follow, follow uh, yours and I'm following this, this podcast's account. And um, it's great to see the, the, the engagement around the conference and the interest in it as well. And, you know, I look forward to, um, you know, to what should be an entertaining football year. Well, HowRazor.com currently has the big-ass Red Wolves review. I encourage everybody to read it because it's pregnant with information, and it does say a few things about Texas State. Our hated rival, our bitter rival, Texas State, those sons of bitches. I'm so tired of these guys. I'm just trying to make this rivalry happen. So it's on I you. Want it, I want it desperately. So I will be poking at Texas State. All season long, hopefully, we will have that heated sort of Louisiana versus ULM sort of hatred by the end of the season. Plug in the site for ULM, warhawkreport.com, part of the Rivals Network. We'll give Ben a plug as well, even though he's part of the Rival 24-7 network of uh, Panther Talk. We miss you, Ben. Uh, Looking forward to next week. We will be talking the Mountaineers. Oh, okay. Well, we better get ready for that. Yeah, we'll have to gird our suspenders. And get a pipe. (laughs) All right. Thanks a lot, guys. We'll see you all next week. Thanks for coming, Brant. Thanks, guys. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.